Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Nicole Clark. Nicole is co-founder and CEO of Trellis, an AI-powered state court research and analytics platform born out of Nicole's experiences as a litigator. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today. So excited to be here. Let's start at the beginning, Nicole. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Los Angeles, spent a a number of years here. Around 16, I moved to the East Coast. And then I lived there for about 10, 15 years, did college, law school, and eventually made my way back to Los Angeles. That moved to the East Coast. What then prompted you to study at at UMass? Well, I went to a small liberal arts school called Bard. I had done an early acceptance program. So I was 16 when I started college there. And I had close friends. It was in the sort of Western Massachusetts area. And it was one of those situations where I could go on and continue and pay or I could have the state pay and not take on student debt. And so I chose the latter and went to UMass in that case. We're very fortunate about our education system here in Ireland. Uh, all university degrees are free. So oh it's, it's something uh, I don't take for granted when I talk to uh People in the U.S. who start their professional careers carrying a lot of student debt into into it. So it was fantastic, as you say, that you were able to to avoid that. I didn't uh, escape unscathed from law school debt. <laughs> yeah, I, that was where I was yeah. about to go. Was was what prompted you to decide that law school was the right career path for you? It was an interesting thing. I I was growing up. It wasn't something that I had thought about as I was growing up. I actually wanted to be a writer most of my sort of young years. And I got my degree in journalism. And then I graduated and tried to figure out what in the world I could do to earn a living as a journalist. Realized that that was just going to be really, really difficult. I started working in admissions at a college and I just started feeling like I my I just wasn't being satisfied sort of intellectually. And so on a whim, I said, okay, what are my options where I think I can use my brain and make a living? And law school seemed like a good idea at the time. It was right before 2009 crash. So I started law school in 2008 when everything seemed fine and then the whole world collapsed <laughs> while I was in law school. We started law school at almost exactly the same time. So I can definitely relate to that. It was uh, a real sea change, an interesting time to start working then in, in a law firm. Did you have an idea of, of what type of legal career you wanted after law school, whether you wanted to go down the big law route or, or into a smaller firm or end up in-house? Well, I thought the ultimate sort of holy grail was going to be in-house. I didn't expect to be able to do that straight out of law school. So I thought I would do big law. But that was right then when suddenly all of the OCI, all of the the summer associates, they were just deferring from the year before. So nobody was getting hired into big law then. And so I ended up working at sort of a boutique litigation firm doing bankruptcy and foreclosure, which was booming at that point. (laughs) Unfortunately so, absolutely, in terms of the the bankruptcy being such a massive practice area at that point in time. Um, And what were your biggest learnings from your early law firm experiences? 
I think it's one of the things that it takes you years to recognize, oh, that wasn't an issue with the firm. That's just an issue with the profession. So it was really difficult. It didn't feel sustainable for a young associate. And I moved on to a variety of other firms getting progressively larger and felt sort of the same way that it was just a a real slog without without the time that you would need to build the client relationships to bring in business, which would allow you to grow in your career. And so that was that was one of it. And I certainly just in, in particular bankruptcy and foreclosure, and we were representing the banks at that point, was just it wasn't a warm and fuzzy, <laughs> feel good about your job kind of job. And so I wanted to move on. I liked litigation, but I wanted to move on to do a different type of litigation at that point. And so as you moved on into other slightly larger firms, did you start to get exposure to other practice areas or other areas of litigation? You know, I did. I actually got exposed to a wide range. I moved back to Los Angeles and I actually started doing transactional work for a little while. Turns out that was a terrible fit for me. Just, just that it's just the little details are not where I excel. And so they moved me to litigation and they were doing sort of employment and there was sort of the movie sort of industry and there was a litigation related to that and that's where it started to get a little bit more fun for me when we were doing real disputes with people where there were stories behind it and, and facts that you could sort of sink your teeth into and that's when I started to get more interested but from there I really started to hone into employment deeper and deeper through my career after that what out of curiosity brought you back to LA in the first place well it was a variety of life changes sort of. I was living on the East Coast. I'd been out there for school, then I had stayed out there. And I wanted to go back to where I had family and roots. And Los Angeles was a place that I had the closest amount of family. And I also, I had done the winters and really appreciated them for about 10 years or so. And I was just ready for some sunshine. Like life is hard. Let's have a sunny day if it's going to be hard. I can certainly relate to that today where I am (laughs) here in Dublin. It is I think about minus three degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, maybe like 26 or something like that. So it's it's pretty cold. So sunshine sounds pretty appealing about now. I'm curious, where did the idea for Trellis Law originate? I'd say the idea was, was percolating for a number of years. It was one of those things where as a litigator, one of the things that you do when you first get assigned a case is you'll send an email around to your firm saying, does anyone have any intel on, on the judge that you've been assigned to? And I did that firm after firm and just really couldn't believe that we were sourcing anecdotes. And from those anecdotes, making really important decisions, sometimes you can decide to request a different judge entirely, but you have to do it in a small window of time by statute. And we were making these decisions with, you know, not even sourced sort of industry wide, but sourced by the couple of other folks in your firm that may have appeared before the judge before. So that always struck me as like mind blowing that legal wasn't utilizing data more. And so that started sort of percolating while I was at a variety of firms. But the the real origin was I was writing a massive summary judgment motion, really big motion. It's your sort of client's one chance to get out before trial. Very expensive for the client, takes at least a month to write. And I was just complaining to a colleague and I wasn't sure. I didn't know the judge. I didn't, the issue was really complicated and I was trying to figure out how to write the motion that would sort of simplify it for the judge to understand our issue. And my colleague said to me that he thought he had appeared before our same judge before 
And we went and we checked in the file. And this was a file from a number of years ago, a PDF hidden in a, in a file in our document management system, where it was a ruling by the same judge on our exact issue from a number of years earlier. And I used that. I, I basically wrote the motion targeted and tailored exactly to that judge's ruling, won the motion. And for me, that was really the light bulb moment of, I just couldn't believe how come I didn't have access to that from the start. Why wasn't there a database of trial court judges' rulings that I could look through? Here we are, where most cases don't make to trial, let alone to trial, then to appeal. But all the lawyers' research is court of appeals research. So what about the practical legal system where 99% of the litigation is actually taking place? And so for me, that was really when I just couldn't believe that, that this didn't exist yet. And went to sort of the smartest engineer that I knew at the time and said, hey, there is an entire data set of the entire U.S. state trial court system that no one is tapping right now. Like, let's figure out how we can start to grab this data. And so that's how we started. That's fascinating, Nicole. And I'm curious to understand what the next steps on the journey were for yourself and your engineering friend. How did you take it from that kind of initial idea to, to where you are today? So it took a lot of courage to actually jump from practice. So what we did was we started collecting data and I continued practicing and, and I really wanted to make sure that the data was valuable before I jumped. I was not, I had, I hadn't considered that I was going to be an entrepreneur or bust. It was sort of the compulsion of building this thing just got stronger and stronger. And I continued practicing for two years while we continued to aggregate data and my motion practice changed dramatically. I just continued winning because I had what felt like the answers to the test. And it was that in combination with us growing a really meaningful data set that I said, okay, it's time, let's do this. And so finally jumped from practice in 2018. Did you try to kind of boil the ocean and, and address every state at once? Or are you taking a kind of uh, an iterative approach and a state-by-state -state approach? I think you can only do it in an iterative approach when you're a small startup. Uh, so we started with California. It was where I was practicing. And really, during that time, we had started collecting data in the courts that I was appearing in most often. It was sort of the idea, let it be my secret weapon. If it works, then we'll think about making this a business. And so we had had a good portion of counties across the state in California and California is a really interesting state because what they do, they release something that's called a tentative ruling, which is where the judge releases a ruling 24 hours before they actually rule on the record. And they say why, why they're going to grant or deny a particular motion that is then disappeared, that it doesn't go on the final public record. It's only released for sort of the lawyers on that case to know what they should argue in front of the judge. But we were able to aggregate all of that data, which was disappearing data, which made our California data set a really special data set to uh, launch the company with. And I know from personal experience, it's a daunting prospect, kind of fully separating yourself from your professional career and taking the leap. How was that on a personal level that day that you stopped practicing and kind of went full time into trellis law? It's such a good point. I think it's very difficult to, particularly for 
founders, I think, to separate ourselves and our identity from our business. And I don't know that I've achieved it yet. They're still very, very tied together. But working on it for sure, you know, celebrating the wins along the way, we all have this goal of you get to something massive, but making sure that you do celebrate the milestones that you're getting on the way. And that's something I'm continuing to work on because they are so deeply tied together, sort of identity and what you assume to be success, which is just a moving goalpost as a business gets bigger. Eight years into the journey can certainly attest to that or more than eight years at this stage. And I'm curious to understand, here at Bright Flag, like the major catalyst for innovation in legal spend management and using data to drive more kind of objective decisions around resourcing and pricing of work has been the corporate legal department and specifically legal operations leadership in tandem with legal leadership, the general counsel, the the assistant GCs, very often the head of litigation playing an, an important role in that. And I'm curious for you, have you seen that kind of demand for what you're doing coming directly from corporate legal teams and litigation teams, or are you tending to work more closely with law firms at this stage? So we're working with both for sure. I would say it's an interesting thing when you can have the client push a little bit on the law firm, it moves so much faster when they have expectations of this is data that we should be looking at. So our corporations are large legal departments that do that. We have the combination of both helping them. For them, it's a slightly different use case. It's a track where they're getting sued across the nation in state court and then be able to get updates on those cases and alerted on those cases without having to rely on outside counsel to update them but also just have the expectation that their counsel is using them. On the other side of that are the law firms and and selling in. And we tend to be utilized most heavily by uh, knowledge management, on the one hand, who's sort of our decision maker, and then associates for the grind of the legal research. They're the ones actually doing the motion drafting, all of the legal research. And then partners utilize more of the analytics aspects of it. So quick, high level, want to learn about my judge, want to learn about sort of what the grant rate is on this motion. Typically, how can I set client expectations? What's your sense, Nicole, of the the level of maturity of most litigation practices in in law firms today and kind of being data-driven in their approach to, to litigation strategy? Yeah, it's such a wide variety. There is absolutely a spectrum. And I think more folks fall on the earlier end of the spectrum than not. There are certainly some firms that are really impressive and innovative and are pushing with their data. And I think most are at a stage now where they're talking about it. They recognize it's important. They recognize they have to do something soon, (laughs) but they don't necessarily know what that is. And they're not necessarily prepared to jump in quite yet. So it really depends. We see a full spectrum of uh, everyone at the firm is using it. We require the sort of paralegals to be trained and and all across the board, there's expectation that um, it's sort of firm-wide adoption. And then there's other ones where it's sort of, we'll have one person try it out, which, but that person, it's not their direct job and they're not going to be able to see the value or use case. So there's a wide variety there. I think particularly big law has, there's still a ways to go for them to really move forward. And it's as much deciding on the technology as figuring out how to communicate it through the firm once they do have technology. How do they actually help with, or how do they have the vendors help with adoption instead of what happens sometimes, which is sort of keep us away 
where then we can't assist. And then of course, adoption is going to be difficult when the firm doesn't have communication that they actually have access to this tool in the first place. Such an important point, I think, is you can have the best technology in the world, but if it isn't underpinned by kind of internal buy-in and motivation and clear communication and an effective kind of onboarding strategy and kind of engagement strategy to ensure people are using the tool in the most effective way, things can kind of fall flat. And uh, I certainly know it's it can be a little bit more challenging doing that in law firms as opposed to kind of typical corporate structures. I'm interested to understand as the company has developed and you've kind of worked closely with these customers and gotten their feedback, is there anything that surprises you now that in terms of the direction the product has gone in or how it's being used that you wouldn't have anticipated when you started? I'm continuously surprised. We do a lot of testing at the company where it's a core and the sort of DNA of the company of testing things. We make assumptions. We think customers are going to do X and then we test it and we see. And I'm just wrong all the time. <laughs> um, we the, For various things, we do things, uh, let's say high level top where they someone comes onto our site and you see the sign up flow. We test out different things. And this page we think is going to do better than another page. Not true. You know, I think that putting the the case name first is going to help people understand not true. So there's all sorts of things there. But I'd say in the core of the product, things that have surprised me, the analytics, right? We have a dashboard, meaning it's very interactive. Every page you can go deeper and deeper, but they don't want to use that. They want to print it. And so making sure, and this is actually is more complicated than you would think when you have a dashboard that you now have to figure out how to print because there's so many different options that someone can ultimately do. So how do you make it easy for them, have them get what they actually want without giving them far too much information? But it's things like that where you still have to remember the industry and the industry, there is still formalities, the expectations, and you can't push different behavior. You have to see what people actually want. You can make assumptions that they'll want a dashboard, but if they want to print it, let's help them print it, right? And so it's things like that, that you have to just watch. And, you know, my engineers think that's crazy. What do you mean print a dashboard? That's what we got to do, guys. <laughs> like, so things like that. It sounds like you've very quickly arrived at that understanding that the kind of legal training where you focus on ensuring the kind of finished product you submit is close to absolute perfection is not necessarily the best approach when you're developing software and working with customers and having to iterate quickly and that understanding that it's better to fail quickly, get something wrong, figure out how to improve it. And uh, your point about how people digest data and information, I've certainly observed that as well. Still in the legal ecosystem, people maybe want to be able to take something away, include it in a a presentation or a, a report or Discuss, yeah. <laughs> discuss a physical document, whether it's with a, a senior stakeholder in the the, the law firm or, or uh, with the client. If anything, I actually think there's interesting dissonance there of how to create a really good software product. And you're absolutely right. It's iteration, right? It's impossible to build something perfect without getting a ton of input from your client throughout the process, the building process, because you're never going to know exactly what they want. So you have to do that iteration. But I think for lawyers and law firms, the legal industry in general, they're not used to technology improving rapidly. And so somehow combining the, we need your feedback to make the product better for you, which will take place really rapidly and quickly 
with we've only seen from the industry, they've sort of only seen technology products that are finished or haven't changed dramatically. And so helping folks to understand the way software actually works in other industries, which is MVP, next iteration, next iteration, released on almost a weekly basis, right? And those things are really important. And there, it's a little bit of a push in the industry to understand how quickly software can actually iterate if you help give us feedback. And I think when you get those uh, early adopter clients where you have a strong champion with a very clear perspective on the, the pain points they have and, and understands the value of partnering with you in, yes. in that their feedback is going to be incorporated very quickly, as you say, in the next release. That's a really powerful combination in, in developing something truly unique and helping to kind of move the industry forward more generally. And, and I'm curious, uh, Nicole, to the extent you're comfortable sharing, what's next for Trellis? What are you kind of focusing on right now? So there's sort of always uh, two parallel paths that move forward at Trello. So one is our data acquisition. So, so from a high level, we're a state trial court data, legal research database. So what you would find on individual county court websites is searchable from a single interface on our platform. So everything at the state trial court level. So that is uh, really a pretty big feat because you're talking about thousands of individual fragmented counties that all host their data separately, maintain it separately, that we have to go in county by county. There's no magic button for us either. We go in. So the data itself, core data acquisition, is always going to be a core pillar of the company. We are right around 1,000 counties that are live on our site right now. And 2023 is to take over <laughs> the rest of the world. Uh, no, no big deal. So the rest of the world, meaning the United States in this case, a uh, very, very nationalist point of view. But any county that is at least digital at this point, we want to bring live onto our system over 2023. Then it's time to go after the ones that are still entirely offline, believe it or not, that exists. You have to go into an office to request documents. It's mind-blowing. So that'll be those. And then on the other side are the analytics, the analytics layered on top of that data. So by gathering that data, structuring it, organizing it, we're able to surface insights. So we are about to release our uh, county analytics. This is comparing two venues to each other in the way motions are granted, how long cases take, the volume of cases, all of that sort of thing. That was a request that we started getting from some of our customers over this last year, where it's great to see this judge, but we're deciding where we're going to file in this county or this county, and we want to look at some of this information. So we're about to release that. And one that is a work in progress, that is um, is really a holy grail and sounds simple, is the lawyer and law firm analytics. And the reason it's so much more difficult than it sounds is because every court lists it differently in terms of an individual lawyer or a law firm that's appearing in a particular case. And where it's an individual lawyer, we have to map that lawyer without any other information to the firm uh, that, and make sure that it's actually them and not someone else with a similar name across the country. And then vice versa, for firms, we have to map, figure out who was the individual that was drafting that motion, map them correctly. People move laterally in the meantime, so they've changed firms since the year, going back. So there's a lot of data work in terms of really making sure that lawyer and law firm analytics uh, are accurate. And so that's a huge project that we are in the process of working on that will get released next year. That's incredibly exciting, Nicole, and I know 
the power of bringing structure to a previously kind of offline or unstructured data set and the kind of the insights that can arise out of that uh, once you put it in the hands of, of your customers is incredibly powerful. It takes a lot of thought, a lot of hard work, and uh, very excited to see that the progress that you make next year in just bringing far more visibility into, as you say, incredibly sh- shocking to hear that some of this data does not even exist online today. That's incredibly exciting. I'm wondering, Nicole, do you have any kind of advice to any lawyers or legal professionals listening who maybe considering a, a change in career direction, considering moving into legal technology or legal operations or, or innovation from your perspective now with the benefit of hindsight, any, any things you'd call out? So obviously mine is going to be biased, but gosh, I would just say do it. If you are close on the fence to thinking that firm life is not for you, I, I think back on my career and on ultimately leaving practicing. And there were so many years where I thought that my option was to change firms. And if I wasn't happy, I would change firms. And it was like a horse that had blinders on. I didn't see any other possibility. It didn't even occur to me that anything else was possible. And now stepping out of that, and I'm seeing variety of industries, there are awesome jobs everywhere (laughs) that you can absolutely utilize your legal experience, your legal expertise, and what feels to me to be really, truly satisfied, whether that means hanging your own shingle and going out on your own or finding a technology company or being more in the the sort of business or compliance, there's a lot of options out there. And I really say um, it's something you, you should pursue. It has been such a huge net benefit for me. And I am so happy. And obviously we, we have a ton of lawyers. I talk to my lawyers all the time. So glad not doing that. That is a very hard job. (laughs) Now I wouldn't say other jobs. So being a founder, just as stressful, right? You know, working just as hard, but there is a joy to getting to build something from scratch that I just brings huge amount of purpose and joy to my life. I couldn't agree more and uh, doesn't feel like work much of the time. But as you say, it is still hard and in, in different ways. What would you say is that has been the hardest adjustment or skill set you've had to develop uh, as a founder and CEO of a legal tech company? So it depends which skill that I need to develop at which stage of the business, right? It just continues to keep changing. One, as I mentioned early on, you celebrate your early wins. That continues to be hard for me, making sure that we recognize wins along the way because it is a long journey. It is no matter what, it's going to be a long journey, whatever career path you're on. And how can you recognize milestones along the way? The other for me personally, delegating. I think that sort of Uh, Being an associate and as an attorney, I really felt this ownership over everything that I did. And as you continue to grow in your career, if you don't delegate, you won't be successful. You can't possibly do it all. And so continuing to get better at that, I think, is something that's really important as you progress in your career to leadership. 100%. The ability to kind of build a great team, certainly that's been Mm -hmm. our great luck here at Bright Flag, I think bringing great people with you and empowering them to do great work. And uh, certainly from my perspective, people who have much deeper domain expertise in different areas, whether it's product or sales or marketing or customer success, that's the only way to do it. makes you successful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I hear you. And Nicole, to the extent that you do have any spare time, what do you enjoy doing when you're not 
company building? So I have a nine-year-old and spend time with her that is as you stolen moments <laughs> so trying to trying to make sure i'm present with her when i have time the other thing that i really love to do is garden i love growing plants and so just continuing to sort of grow and, and flourish the garden and build things from scratch both plants and company are the things that i enjoy that's very impressive. I have to admit, I assumed that was not a real plant behind you. <laughs> so so the uh, funny thing is the light that's on, that's supposed to be the light for my camera. And I put it on the plant because that's what I prioritize at this point. <laughs> well, you've, Got you've, priorities. You've, well, you've been doing a, a great job on both fronts, both with trellis uh, and with your, your gardening. Out of curiosity, is, is that the origins of the name of the company as well? Is that anything to do with your love of gardening? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. So the idea was sort of a support and growth for your practice. How can we provide data that will help you grow and support your practice? Great name. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and, and looking forward to seeing Trellis go from strength to strength. Thank you so much, Alex. Great to be here. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.